0: Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Gregor Robertson is with me as per usual and today Martin Ziegler joins us. Gregor and Martin, lovely to have you with us today. Martin, how are you doing? Um, I know the last time you were with us you were telling us about how busy you have been considering there is no football. I'm guessing that's still the same for you?
1: Absolutely still the same, um, if, if anything, if anything, more busy than the last time.
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> It's it's but, like the uh, gift that keeps on giving.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's you know, if just the Premier League alone, they've got um, meetings tomorrow, they've got meetings on Wednesday, they've got meetings on Thursday. Um, so they're the trying to get football back up and running is, is something that's spending everybody in the clubs and the Premier League are spending a, a huge amount of time trying to do, and but and also the Championship as well.
2: Absolutely, yes. We'll get
0: on to that in just a moment. But while Martin is is busy trying to um, work out what's happening with Project Restart, Gregor, you've been sunning yourself, I hear.
3: <laughs> I don't want to. Uh... <laughs> I, I'm doing some work. <laughs> I know you are. I tease no, yeah, uh, just I'm at that stage of lockdown where, you know, uh, Susie informed me today that it was a bank holiday. I had no idea of that whatsoever. I barely know what day it is these days.
0: I know. You're absolutely right. I, was, I had to go out earlier on and I was thinking, gosh, this is taking me a lot quicker to get out and about. And then it dawned on me it must be a bank holiday. But I hadn't, hadn't even thought about it. But are you keeping well, Gregor?
3: Yes, very well. How are you?
0: Yes, I'm very, very well. Uh, just in terms of the shade that you'd call yourself right now, <laughs> are we a, a nice brown? Or are we a salmon pink? Where are we at?
3: Yeah, somewhere between salmon and lobster pink. I think that's probably <laughs> the best description. <laughs> Say no more. Lovely.
0: Say no more indeed. Now, coming up, we're examining the moral issue facing the EFL as it looks into government bailouts to halt its financial crisis. And we'll be looking back at some famous on this dayers for the 25th of May. Liverpool fans so won't want to miss it. All that to come after this. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and
2: 365-day returns.
0: Now, the back page of The Times today reads, League Drop's plan for hotel quarantines. News that the Premier League will not require players to be quarantined in a hotel for either one week or two before matches resume. Now, the practice was used in Germany for the week before the resumption of the Bundesliga season to reduce the risk of COVID-19 infection. However, it's understood that the idea has been dropped and does not feature in draft plans for the Premier League's protocol for when games resume, which is expected to be on June the 19th or more likely June the 26th, all behind closed doors, of course. Now, Martin, you've written this piece for The Times, so is this a reason for us to be cheerful, that that football is getting closer to resuming?
1: Yes, I think it's one of of the hurdles that had to be crossed. The the Premier League's medical advisor, Mark Gillette, said last week that they were going to be looking at this idea of of a quarantine period before the first match. Uh, That um, ran into a few problems. A, there's not many hotels that are actually open the other thing i i think quite a few of the players were sort of questioning whether this was what, what they thought was a, was something they wanted to do did they want to get be taken away from their families at the point like this uh for for two weeks i think that was a, probably a bigger hurdle and and also i am not i think there was a generally a thing what's the point of protesting so so many times is there really any point to doing this I, the germans did it for a week Mark Gillette said that we need to do it for 14 days to have any significant effect. So I think the Premier Premier League looked at it and then decided um, we we can do it without this, um, which I think is probably a positive thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, with the recent round of testing, which has revealed two positive results from the 996, you can understand why officials are optimistic that with infection rates low, hotels won't be required for quarantine purposes, Martin.
1: Yeah, I think the the, the infection um, rates that and we, we had, we had six last week out of, um, I think it was about 748, wasn't it? And then, yeah. and then, and then two out of 996. It, it just shows that actually, it, it, we're talking tiny numbers. And that's not players, that's staff as well, coaches. I mean, we knew that Burnley's assistant coach was one of those who tested positive. So, We are looking at a situation where it's very, very few people involved. So, with a bit of luck, that continues, and the um, things will be a bit more straightforward when it comes to getting back into training and then um, getting matches restarted. Which, as we say, is is slipped definitely from June the twelfth to the nineteenth, but almost certainly it's going to be the the twenty sixth. I think.
0: Mm. Uh, Gregor, as as more details emerge about the return of football does it excite you or are you actually still apprehensive about it all
3: uh, I'd say somewhere in the middle I'll put like optimistic uh, I wasn't beforehand and I think really those first raft of tests were were a huge kind of uh, leap forward with the numbers you know any 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 positive tests were for were, were some concern but they're very small and it's even the same in in the championship recently I think there was two so mm. um you know I, I think we're still at the f the kind of mercy of external forces obviously the, as as i've seen the the infection rate is falling um the next hurdle is of course when phase two kicks in of the training protocols which everyone's, everyone's discussing this week and, and uh the contact the players come into contact more often and so if there is any uh positive test uh, positive you know anyone catches coronavirus essentially then there's more more risk. Potentially and in, spread in, uh, spreading through a team, but uh, as Martin says, the risks do, do, do now look appear to be appear to be pretty minute. Um, so as long as that that trajectory remains downwards in the rest of the country, then I think really we're taking some big steps forward towards football returning.
1: Mm.
0: I mean we know that that some footballers have been quite vocal Gregor about not wanting to return Troy Deeney obviously has his reasons uh, with regards to family members that he doesn't want to expose to the virus but do you think if you were a footballer still playing today and you heard these testing results and how it seems to be affecting only a small and I say small it's very small minority of players right now that it would make you feel like perhaps football is a safe place to return to
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that was enormous. It was even even the players who did test positive. I think, uh, by all accounts, were asymptomatic, and it's. um, I I just feel that those they are very small numbers, and I think there's a kind of, from what I understand, speaking to one or two players, there's a pretty strong consensus there won't be any hurdles. There are still concerns, uh, as you say, Troy Deeney and others have voiced concerns that really are going to be pretty impossible to answer for quite some time. So, um, you know, those those concerns still exist, but I don't foresee there being any problems in taking the next step into full contact training. Um, and that's that's another big step towards the return of football.
0: Well, you mentioned that conversations are going to be taking place. It is a big week ahead for Project Restart, with clubs meeting on Wednesday and Thursday to discuss a host of matters, including... The return or players being allowed to have full contact training or some contact training this week. The exact date for the restart of football will also be discussed, as will TV scheduling and what systems should be used to decide on the outcome of the league should the season have to be curtailed. The issue of whether relegation should be scrapped is expected to be raised by at least one club, but it looks unlikely to win widespread support as well. So, so Martin, when you hear all of these uh, points that need to be discussed this week, how crucial is it for Project Restart?
1: first of all the first thing is is getting um getting the, the second phase of training agreed which is the contact training which look which i think is as 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 has said it looks like the you know the players are getting behind this and um it will pro- probably will be approved on on wednesday and then on thursday th- things become a bit trickier around like what you know the plan of what will happen if the season is curtailed I think that, that will be. There'll be some heated discussions around there. I'm not even sure there'll be a vote, but I think it, there'll be some sort of determination that it's going to be um, decided on sporting merit. And I think there will be. I mean, the FA have already made it perfectly clear that they're not going to sanction no relegation. So I, th- I think that's probably off the table. I'm sure that there will be an effort made to try and get that, get that approved by by a couple of clubs. Um, so it's. Um, it's probably the, the most important week for the Premier League for since since the um, the suspension of, of of play back in in mid March because I, there's there's so much on the table. In fact, I, there's, there's probably never been two um, Premier League shareholders meetings on consecutive days since it started in 1992. I think that's how serious this is.
0: Mm. And do you really think, Martin? Then by the end of this week, we could be given a start date for the Premier League.
1: They might give give us a revised one or a revised target. I mean, June June the 12th was always a target rather rather than than, um, the actual start date. So I wonder if they'll just revise the target and make that June the 26th.
0: So June the 26th, which is just over a month's time then, Gregor. From a footballer perspective, is that enough time to get ready to resume football
3: yeah, I think I think the players want four weeks of full contact training, um, so that's just about there. Um, I think there were, there were one possible issue still, and I don't know how. I don't think this is going to hold things up, but I still think there might be some hesitancy about signing the 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 kind of waivers. Almost, um, I think that partly that might be to do with the PFA. I think they're quite uh, reluctant to advise the players to to sign these waivers which you know there's still this whole issue about liability if the worst should happen so I, you know i don't I, as long as we can proceed without that happening i think i'm sure we still will but i, I still think that there will be reluctance from from the players to to basically sign a form saying that um they're risking <laughs> risking their life even how, how small it is mm.
0: um
3: so that would be interesting to see i think in the coming days
0: Well, Martin, just lastly on that and on the point that Gregor has made, do you know if that is a conversation that will be taking place at some point this week? And also the subject of contracts and and players' contracts who are running out at the end of June. Do we know where we're at with that?
1: Yeah, well, I think we do know on that because the clubs voted last week to accept that those could be extended until the end of the season, um, certainly up until July 31st. Um, So I think we're okay with the contracts. I think the issue of, of of waivers is definitely an outstanding issue, and I think it's not just the players that are worried about that. It's the clubs, the, the directors. Are they are, would they be liable for for you know in the worst 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 case scenario if a, if a player um, caught COVID and, and and died, would the players be would the directors then be liable for effectively corporate manslaughter in, in which is Obviously, extreme, but it's something that lawyers will have to um, to look at and judge. So that, that's that's a, that's another obstacle, and I think they'll, they'll just have to just have to make a, a decision on, on the liability factor there.
0: So we are getting closer to Project Restart in the Premier League. Championship clubs this week are resuming training at their grounds. and I know, Gregor, you've been writing about the EFL for the Times and whether government bailouts could be the only way to ensure the preservation of the EFL. It's an idea that been proposed by Damien Collins, the former chairman of the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, and also uh, Charlie Methven, the co-owner of Sunderland, who many people will recognise from Netflix's Sunderland Till I Die, or as Gregor affectionately calls him, the accidental David Brent of the series. I'm sure he loves that, (laughs) Gregor. Um, Now, they have proposed a six-point plan, which includes the creation of an independent body, the Football Finance Authority, and would still need finer details to be worked out on how clubs would pay back the bailouts to become self-sufficient once more. Perhaps, Gregor, you can just tell us a little bit more to, to this situation than that you've been finding out with regards to the EFL. Well, um, Damien
3: Collins and... Uh, the first thing to say is uh, it's uh, surprising how kind of far-reaching this this uh, report was and, and and through the authors were. I think I said in the piece it's kind of... Uh, for a Conservative... Uh, pair of Conservatives, a Conservative MP and a, and a Conservative policy policy consultant to to uh <laughs> advocate potentially like you know government bailout of of football clubs and potentially kind of to allow to allow supporters or local authorities to to uh, to to buy the stake in in the football clubs um at a future date over a period of time you know you would you think you were living in La Land, La La Land a few months ago <laughs> um and and it is you know it's very bold. I think th- this is something that that uh, supporters direct. Uh, it's what is now known as Football Supporters Association. Um, have been kind of advocating for probably a couple of years now. And any supporters of clubs such as Portsmouth in the past or Blackpool clubs who've had really really awful times because of of uh, of their ownership. Uh, they've been pushing for this and it's it's a step towards a kind of a, bit, a, a an independent body that would oversee the EFL's rules and regulations uh, on finances um and and enforce them because that's always been a huge issue. Uh basically the EFL seems impotent when it comes to um enforcing rules about, you know, the owners and directors test or um Financial fair play regulations, so that it, it's a huge, it's kind of pretty, fairly wide ranging and also i think it's it's i'll be brutally honest i think it's quite unlikely, but I think there is is room for government to lend a hand at this moment in time but as i said before, we live in extraordinary times, and a lot of people will have problem with the fact that football is such a a wealthy industry at at the top anyway and Premier League has so much money, and we all expect that the Premier League or hope the Premier League should uh, should lend a hand at the moment. Um, we're talking about a 200 million black hole, as Rick Barry, the EFL chairman, said. Others think Mark Palios, one being one, the Premier Chairman, thinks it could be far more. Um, and this is the problem: P- football clubs, when they don't have a, a a billion pound TV deal as the Premier League do. Are losing up to half their income by having no supporters through the gates if if they start at all next season. So, this is the question. There's a huge black hole. And I just thought it was worth, you know, that this report was re- released on Friday and it, you know, it made a few lines in, in most newspapers, but I, I think it's worth actually uh, considering. It may not be in exactly the shape or form, but I know as well, having spoken to a number of, of uh, club owners, that this has been raised in the EFL meetings. Uh, possibly in a different way they would pro- probably be reluctant to give up a, a stake in their football clubs uh, but they have s- spoken about the potential of of uh, government loans uh, probably weighted against future tv deals so mm. it's not it's not impossible
0: uh, it's interesting though isn't it martin because often when you speak to People outside of football, they'll often talk about the riches in football, but they're obviously referring to the Premier League and and not necessarily League Two clubs. And many won't have sympathy, though, for football clubs because of the finances that are involved. Do you think if the government were to get involved and to perhaps help bail them out, that there is a a moral issue there uh, at stake?
1: I I spoke to people from Inside Whitehall last week on this. Um, They are very, very strong that... It's not up. You know, they're not willing to step in and give money um, to, to football or any other sport really, uh, apart from rugby league, which they have committed to because they're hosting the, the rugby league world cup next year. So, um, I think it's very, very difficult for government to to prop up football clubs when what they say they need, they want to see is is the Premier League sharing their money more widely down the football pyramid and I think that's I think that it's just about the only way it's going to work
0: I mean I was speaking to the Huddersfield owner earlier on today and he is alarmed at the situation in the EFL and further down the footballing pyramid it has to be said what was striking about the conversation with Phil Hodgkinson was that he was saying that all the conversations that seem to be taking place in the EFL right now Gregor are all about how do we restart the season? No one is discussing the future long-term impact of coronavirus and how that is going to affect the footballing pyramid. And that's the discussion and the conversation that Hodgkinson wants to have now so that he uh, believes, I should say, he thinks 50 or 60 clubs could go if we don't start these conversations now. And that's quite alarming.
3: I agree absolutely, emphatically. I think that, you know, I understand why the all the kind of, hand-wringing and hair-pulling at the moment is about finishing the season. Teams don't want to be relegated. Other teams want to have the chance of promotion or to fight for playoffs. I understand. But it is obscuring the bigger issue, which is next season, um, because it's fairly widely accepted at the moment that probably at least until January 2021, we're not going to have any supporters of stadiums. Um, I mean, you look at what the sheer level of costs that need to be cut, especially in, for some clubs in League 1 and League 2, uh, we're talking about asking players to take probably fifty percent wage cuts, and I know there is a a kind of audit taking place just now, which is uh, being done by Deloitte and and the PFA. Uh, and I I know I spoke to one chairman who said that that uh, that was their advice. Basically, you need to get f- take fifty percent. <laughs> agree, have your players agree to take a fifty percent wage cut. Uh, or else you're going to be hemorrhaging money, and that is not going to be easy. The PFA stance in this has always kind of been, if owners have the money and the means to, to pay their players, then they should do. Uh, I mean, it's, on, it's all going to be dependent on, on, you know, how owners' businesses are being affected by this as well, and, and, you know, there are going to be some clubs, undoubtedly, in the next two or three months who are in serious, serious trouble. And... And really that is the biggest issue, player costs. If you can't if you can't find a way around that, then we need we need I think there there's gonna have to be some kind of bailout from the Premier League or government regardless. I you know, I I think and my fear is if it's the Premier League then what do they ask for in return?
0: Indeed. There will be massive ramifications, no doubt, but let's look at some of the other money saving alternatives that perhaps have been suggested. One is regionalized leagues. now this has been briefly championed by among others, Andy Pilly, the Fleetwood Town owner, who funds losses of between four and six million annually despite there being little if any evidence of significant financial gain. The other option is salary caps. Caps amounting to between 2.5 and 3 million in League One and 1.25 to 1.5 million in League Two are widely welcomed and expected to come into force this summer. The proposal also may limit squads to 20 senior players. But Mark Catlin, the chief executive of Portsmouth, says. A salary cap has a relevance in the long-term sustainability of football under certain circumstances, but it doesn't solve the short to mid-term problem of players who are already under contract and what clubs have already committed to while no fans are coming in to pay the bills. Of those two suggestions that I've just mentioned there, Martin, in terms of regional leagues and salary caps, do you think either of those could help?
1: I think salary caps will definitely help. Um, and as you say, will almost certainly come in. With the EFL chairman Rick Parry's spoken about that in very positive terms, as have quite a few of the clubs. I don't think regional leagues. I don't think there's much favour around those. I've spoken to quite a few clubs, and I think generally people don't like that. I I don't think the travel issue is is a big cost factor really for 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 the clubs. So I think I'd. I think that 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 would be a, a sort of drop in the ocean, really. I think what will happen is that market forces will prevail, and and unfortunately, the people are going to suffer, there are the players, because um, in League Two and and League One, but in League Two especially, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of players out of contract in the summer, and they are not going to be able to get the same sort of contract they are on at um, at the moment. Because the money's not going to be there. So they, I think we're going to see part time professionals in, in League Two, which is, for, you know, for, for, for those players who have mortgages and families, that, that's a really tough thing to do. But I, I just, Absolutely. that's where it's going to happen, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, Gregor, can you imagine just a few months ago, you're a full time professional footballer, and now you are facing the possibility of either not having a, a club to come back to or, or a job to come back to, or in league two being a part-time footballer.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's hugely scary times and obviously we have to add that the football's not alone in this. And there are a lot of people losing jobs and absolutely and facing, uh, facing some scary times. But, you know, it's, if you, if, if, if football kind of comes to an end and we're not exactly looking in a, in a healthy uh, jobs market elsewhere, it's really, it would be very, very scary. Um, and I, I agree with Martin. I think you know that I think that's that's ultimately true. There will be market forces will mean that there's so many players that basically the clubs will be able to offer them and they'll have to offer them vastly reduced contracts. But I still don't think that will make up for the financial hole that we're that we're looking at. If if these leagues have to play, then there's gonna be the cost of, of testing. I don't know if they I don't know if they'll be able to manage that. I spoke Catelyn as well said The Portsmouth CEO said that, you know, a lot of people have talked about the the I follow idea and perhaps raising some money by supporters paying to watch the games online or on streams. And he said their club has modelled that they would bring in between 15 and 25 percent of their ordinary ticket revenues through that. So, you know, if you could manage to get 25 percent reduction in your player wages, that still leaves a big old hole. And Portsmouth are one of the biggest clubs in in League One as well, so a lot of clubs wouldn't raise enough money to pay for their testing through iFollow. So uh, salary caps will happen, and as he said, that's a great that's a that's a step forward and it's a step into a bit more of a sustainable future. And I think there is a kind of understanding among among owners and chairmen that this has to happen. But these are all kind of you know also that we hope there might be a a kind of better redistribution, a, a fairer redistribution of of money from the premier league in the future and but that next tv deal is not until 20, 2022 so these are all more long term issues and and there is a short term danger and that's the thing I, I think really we still need to look at how the, that gap's going to be plugged
0: i mean for all the excitement martin that we've we talking about earlier on about project restart and there being a potential date in the diary for when we'll see the Premier League, there does need to be discussions about the future of the pyramid clubs, those lower league clubs who are dependent on those match day revenues that won't be getting that for some time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they. I mean, they're, they're, if there could be some sort of um, fund set up, but the trouble is, the, the Premier League clubs they're, they're as worried about their their financial futures as anybody, so they're not going to want to. Hand over lots of of of, of cash to, to to prop up the lower league club. So it, it's a difficult one, and as I said, the government they're not they're not keen either because they and it's not just football, by the way. That they're not they're not keen to do it for rugby league, for rugby union, or for cricket. So, and I think you know if if they did if they did it for football, for Premier League football, set up some sort of fund, then. All other sports would say well what about us too so it's it's a really it's probably it's impossible it's an impossible um thing for just to, to solve really um and it's just one of those things where you just hope people can survive and get through it and crowds can come back in in january and that will make up for it but i, I think it's yeah very testing times
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
0: The 25th of May is a special day in the sporting calendar. 1967, if I take you back to then. Celtic became the first British club to win the European Cup, beating Inter Milan 2-1 in Lisbon. Fast forward to 1998, Charlton and Sunderland played out one of the greatest playoff finals ever at Wembley. As Charlton were promoted to the Premier League thanks to Sasa Illich saving Mickey Gray's penalty after a 4-all epic was decided on spot kicks. 2005 Liverpool won the Champions League final beating AC Milan 3-2 on penalties in Istanbul after recovering from being 3-0 down at half time. We can't let the date pass then without looking back on that night in Istanbul for Liverpool 15 years ago today. Gregor can you remember where you were at that time?
3: I can I was with uh, the Scotland of the 21s I think we had a Double header against Moldova and Belarus, the mighty Moldovans and Belarus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a few days' time, so we were in a hotel, um, and I remember the manager Rainer Bonhoff, German legendary midfielder, won the World Cup. He was our manager. It was during the the Berti era. Yeah. He um, he. I, he felt, I
0: felt like I went German then. I went yeah
3: <laughs> yeah. I <don't> know <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he allowed us all to have kind of some pizza and a and a beer. In, in a room and and watch the game together, and I just remember everyone jumping around the room, kind of in awe and uh, so much excitement during the game, and, and one player, uh, Stephen Whitaker, who le- who later signed for Norwich City, Norwich City fans will remember him. He had a bet that that he had a three nil half time and a three all full time. No. He had a bet, and he—he only put like two quid on it, or something. But well, still, and when did he put
0: that bet on?
3: That that afternoon, we'd be—you no. know, we we'd had training, and and he, we went for a little walk and stuff, and he put that bet on, and it was just—you know—that just added a little bit of <laughs> extra you kind know, of spice to the thing as well, because everyone in the room knew that he had that bet. Um, oh, it's just—it's one of the all-time great games, and um, and uh, just remember. It, was, it being a rarity that we were allowed to have some slightly unhealthy food and a beer with a football team.
0: <laughs> Martin, do you know where you were at the time? I,
1: I can't quite remember, no.
0: Martin, no. I can't believe it. It's one of those things that do you know where you were when Liverpool won the Champions League? Obviously, you were very busy. That is understandable. But when you now look back on that final, can you believe what happened in Istanbul, Martin?
1: I'd, all I remember about it is thinking when uh, when Liverpool got one goal back, I did I did think it's on now. Yeah, it did feel like it was a really really important goal, a turning point, and um, I wasn't surprised when they when they when they pulled it off from half time. You know, from what happened at half time, I actually wasn't surprised after that. You know, once they got that one goal back, it just. You could see what was going to happen.
0: Yeah, momentum completely shifted to Liverpool, that's for sure. Uh, I was actually in a bar, if you want to know where I was. Uh, obviously, having some light refreshments. Uh, <laughs> I'd gone with some friends, a few of which were Liverpool fans. And I do remember at half time one of my friends, well, she was crestfallen, she was heartbroken. She was adamant, that was it. You know, we've got to leave. I don't want to watch this anymore. And I, mystic Meg that I am, said no, 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 look, if they can score three in the first half, there's no reason why you can't score three in the second. Now, I didn't expect them to score three. I was just trying to make her feel better. But anyhow, obviously, we we remember what happened after that, and they did go on and score three. But what makes that win more remarkable is the AC Milan side, Gregor, that Liverpool are up against. If I just remind everybody, you had Dida, you had Cafu, Maldini, Stam, Nesta, Gattuso, Seydorf, Pirlo, Kaka, Shevchenko and Crespo, those... Those names make you purr when you think about footballers, Gregor. Is that sort of the best side do you think to, to ever lost a Champions League final?
3: I mean, it's got to be right up there. I I actually went to the, the Champions League final two years before that at, at Old Trafford uh, between Milan and Juventus, and it was an awful game. <laughs> it was nowhere near oh. the same the same <laughs> game. But they had very much a kind of the same team. They had Nesta Maldini, Sadov... Pierlo Gatuso, Rui Costa at the time then and, and Zaghi and Shawchenko. Shechenko scored the winner on uh on uh, in a penalty shootout after a 0 nil Uh but I, so I had seen that team in in action beforehand. And yeah, I mean they were they were they were irresistible in the first half. And that, that, that goal from Crespo with the kind of Pierlo played uh played the ball in and the through ball and Carragher's kind of lunging to lunging to block it and Cresco just thinks it'd be on Dudeck and you thought, Oh my god, they're they're gonna it could be embarrassing in the second half here. So yeah, I mean obviously that everyone looks back at the the tactical switch that, that Rafa Benitez made mm-hmm. throw on Didi Haman. Um and then Steven Gerrard just kind of became like a man possessed in the second half and uh and that header was remarkable. And you know, it's just this kind of sheer force of personality and uh, he was like a force of nature in that second half Uh, and it is one of the all-time great games I think
0: you mentioned Steven Gerrard obviously everybody talks about him being the hero of the night anyone else though do you think deserves more credit than they really got from that night in Istanbul Gregor I think
3: Hammond was was a huge a huge switch uh I think that that you know the, the tactical switch as well, but he was you know he put he covered some amount of ground, and then you know there was little clips doing doing the rounds of social media this morning. Jerzy Dudek made that mm-hmm. that double save. Uh, I think it was from Shevchenko. It was um, the second one. You know it was <laughs> it was ridiculous. He just kind of getting back back onto his feet on the goal line, and you know just instinct, and it somehow went over the over the bar, and so. Yeah, there were moments like that. And I think, you know, there's moments that players reflect upon now, I think. And I think Carragher said, you know, that moment was just a moment where they thought, A, how on earth has has that not gone in? And B, this has to be our night. Uh, And then, you know, you just kind of look back at the celebrations. Carragher kind of, when when Dudek obviously saved the penalties uh, at the end, running around like a kind of... Little school kid leaping in the air, he just couldn't control himself. So, yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant night.
0: Yeah, very much so, Martin. When you think back then to that Champions League final of 2005, do you think that's the best one that's ever been in terms of the story, the the comeback, and, and all that came with it?
1: If, if you were writing it as a sort of fictional uh, story. <laughs> You'd you think it was so unlikely it couldn't it couldn't actually happen, don't you? So yeah. from that point of view, probably it was. I mean, the venue, the place it was. I mean, I have always regretted not going to it because I uh, I went to the final the year before and the year after, um, and I remember why I can't remember it now because I've just I've just been looking back at the dates, um, and it, it was I was on paternity leave. That's oh, there go. you go. <laughs> that makes <laughs> sense. And, You're uh, in the baby bubble. Everything's a bit of a blur around that time, obviously you can imagine, and that was also was it. I am right thinking was it Vladimir Smirch? Was that his last performance? Because I, I know he 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 scored an excellent goal, didn't he? Won himself a place in Liverpool fans' hearts forever, didn't he? Um,
0: yes, you are right. He left in the in June of that year, so yeah.
1: So that was a that was a sort of a, a amazing way for him to to sign off. I always thought he was one of these players who was really, really like, technically talented, but. Um, and, and I really liked watching him, but he didn't quite get the impact that uh, he, he he perhaps could have had. But yeah, in terms of the the the, the final itself, it's it, it must be up there, mustn't it? Um, right at the very top of of all the the European Cup finals, and um, a long long way up compared to the uh, the Milan Juventus one at Old Trafford, which was just terrible. But there've been some, I mean, there've been some cracking ones. I mean, um, the one in Cardiff between. Um, uh, Real Madrid and Juventus. That was uh, that was amazing as well. I mean, there have been some brilliant ones recently. So, but yeah, I don't think you'll ever forget the miracle of Istanbul.
0: No, I think you're right there. Although, Gregor, I know that um, I was discussing this a little bit earlier on, and and uh, on Twitter, and somebody wrote to me saying, I don't know why everyone goes on about it being the miracle of Istanbul. Liverpool didn't actually win the game. It was a three-all draw. <laughs> The caveat to that was he was an Everton fan. So uh, (laughs) maybe you can understand why he said that. But equally, he mentioned the game between Liverpool and Barcelona from last season. And he thought that was an even better result when it it comes to to Champions League matches, albeit it wasn't a Champions League final. But where do you stand on on the game at Istanbul and and whether or not it it should be the ultimate Champions League final?
3: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think that and obviously with... with, uh... A Premier League hat on the 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 Manchester United uh, comeback against yeah. Bayern Munich as well. I have to say, I also remember the the uh, the the Arsenal against Barcelona final was another fantastic game, and Henrik Larsson came on and, and kind of changed the game for for Barca. And, I mean, you look at the Arsenal team as well. Then that you know uh, Campbell, Touri, Cole, Fabregas, Gilberto, Lundberg, Henri. That, that that was that was kind of almost peak Arsenal, I think, and. Um, and they came so very close. Uh and you know Barcelona had Ronaldinho and Eto and uh, Deco. So, you know, that was another cracker and but I think I think really between the Manchester United uh, versus Bayern Munich and Liverpool game I think they were two of the greatest. Uh they, they the game at Anfield last season was a remarkable event. You know, that's something I don't think we'll really ever probably see happen again. But there's something different about a final and it's kind of I, I don't know, but it, it's not. There's something unique about the, having two legs in a Champions League, uh, in in the knockout games as well, and the sort ter- of different dimension that puts in the whole game. Uh, a final is just, you know, a complete one-off. And when you're three 0 down at half time, pro- I think a lot of people would have been fearing a humiliation rather than than envisaging the, the possibility of a comeback. So uh, really, it was one for the ages. Yeah.
0: Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Martin. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight week trial. All you have to do is search The Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Thursday for the very latest game podcast. Do stay safe in the meantime.